This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Amanda Vanstone. Welcome to Counterpoint. We complain about our pollies not thinking long-term, but there are people, long-termists, who think we have to ensure the safety of humankind so that we can populate the universe, and that addressing things now, like poverty, are mere distractions. It's not attractive, and I'll bet they've all got enough on their own tables. Remember we had a story on the Wright brothers? The first man flight, the start of going to the moon? They didn't have degrees, they ran a bicycle shop. And the farmer in the late 18th century, who stuck a needle in some cowpox and then into his wife and kids, didn't have a degree either, and they didn't get the pox. But we remember Edward Jenner, not the farmer. Volunteers recording animals, bugs, birds in their areas help map the ecosystem. Wild catchers, they're called. We could build on that. But first to Southeast Asia. The policies of key players are similar to us. They want to work with each other, and so do we. Southeast Asia is our backyard, and we've got a chance to do things there. It's not always negative, you know. There are chances and there are opportunities. And when you look at what some of the states in Southeast Asia are doing, you think, yep, well, we're a part of that and we can do good things. Joining us now to discuss that is Hun Sang. He's a lecturer at the Ho Chi Minh City University of Social Sciences and Humanities, He's currently in Taiwan, went away and can't get back. That's happened to a lot of people. Hun Sun, welcome to Counterpoint. Hi, I'm Anna. It's great to hear from you. Hun Sun, there's been a number of policy decisions by a range of countries, if you like, other countries doing the same as we are, saying, well, what should our engagement be with Southeast Asia? What are the sorts of things that other countries are putting forward? Have they got plans? I think there's so many regional, especially middle powers, they are trying to engage with Asia. And we can see with the case of South Korea, South Korea had a new Southern policy, and now the Chae-in administration updated into the second version. And India also has a great impetus to engage with Asia. We can see that through via the activist policy. And for the case of Taiwan, Taiwan really wants to engage with economic collaboration, talent exchange, and also forging people to people tie via this new South Pole policy. And of course, Japan, with its Indo Pacific strategies, have been trying to couch a balance in China. Yeah. Mm. So there's a complex mix going on there. And you hark back to former Minister Gareth Evans pointing out in a sense, what was the obvious, and that is that 
you know, this is our region and we want a positive security environment and that's really important to us. Sure, yeah. Now, because of what are perceived as changed expectations or ambitions by China, that has meant things have changed a bit, hasn't it? Sure, China has been on the platform now because you can see that with China aggressions over Southeast Asia, I mean, I want to make sure that we understand the point here. China is trying to get a regional hegemony, trying to push away the United States, trying to downplay the real place orders, and trying to intimidate the regional middle powers, including Japan, Australia, Taiwan, and even the smaller country in Southeast Asia. So, I mean, some middle powers like Australia should watch it really careful choices, yeah. Mm. And you think Minister Payne's task of dealing with regional concerns about AUKUS can be achieved by pointing out that this deal gives us the chance to support its US ally and that having defence support from Washington and London gives Canberra an opportunity to really help them that is, the people in Southeast Asia, uphold maritime rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific. And they all want that, don't they? Yeah, referring to the AUKUS, I mean, is that regional country, especially Southeast Asian countries, they have a diverse opinions on the case of AUKUS. And we can see that Malaysia, Indonesia, both countries voice their individual concerns for the regional arms trade, wherever Philippines indicated its support for AUKUS. And the case of Singapore and Vietnam is interesting because both countries did not express opposition or support for the deal. But we can know that behind the scene they have a hidden support for AUKUS. And AUKUS is really important in the Australia foreign policy because I would like to refer to the more recent three priorities. The first one is keeping our economy strong. The second yeah. is keeping Australians safe. And the third one is keeping Australians together. So both economy and security is also being mentioned in the Chapter 2 of Australia 2020 Defence Strategies Update. So trying to focus on ASEAN and also trying to make Australians safe is really important. And also we know that Australia had three strategic defence objectives. The first one is to set Australia's strategic environment. Second is to defer actions against Australia's interests. And the third one is to respond with credible force if required. So the three strategies, the three objectives satisfy the laws of AUKUS against any coercive or crazy activities. Yeah. Mm. And you think that we should look at strengthening this is a fabulous word defence people use, interoperability, but we all understand it, not just between Australia and the United States, but like-minded regional navies, Japan, India, Indonesia, the Philippines and Vietnam. Make sure that we can effectively, as navies, work together. Yeah, that's right, yeah, because we know that the freedom of navigation is really important to Australia. I mean, Australia should consider it to be a marine power, and the second one, Australia should have the courage to defend its interests. And Southeast Asia has been considered to be the immediate region of Australia's strategic interests as a refined geographic focus. And mm. 
Also in the white paper in 2017, we can remember that Australia foreign policy had been focused on Southeast Asia, and Southeast Asia considered to be the nexus of strategic competition in the Indo-Pacific. And in Southeast Asia, we know that the South China Sea is a coherence which Australia should pay attention to. Yeah. You're on RN. This is Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone, and I'm talking with Hun Sang. He's a lecturer at the Ho Chi Minh City University of Social Sciences and Humanities. He's in Taiwan at the moment, but we are talking about opportunities for Australia in Southeast Asia. They are there and we need to grasp them. Now, you've got another idea, which is sort of a bit more out of the ballpark, and that is to look away from the, the Navy and the military aspect and say, look, there's another opportunity for us, and that's to push for more US-Australia-ASEAN cooperation on non-traditional security things, non-traditional security things. So it might be, for example, the COVID-19 response or disaster management. That's a clever idea, to build relationships with people outside of the direct security issue. Yeah. I play a trash on non-traditional areas because it tend to be less sensitive than the traditional security issues and it would likely get as an agreement on collaboration with Australia and the United States. As we may know that Australia has been facing serious obstacles like bus fires, Cylon, boosting houses, storms, and plus is trying to make a traditional issue a locus of its national strategy. Anything Australia can offer some lesson, can offer some help, can offer some expertise to Southeast Asian countries. Yeah. Mm. It's very sensible. I mean, it's often the way on a person-to-person thing. You might want to do something in particular with your neighbour that they don't necessarily want to do, but you can encourage them more by doing something they do want to do. And it's the same in a nation-state sense. Work together as much as you can, not just by saying, well, this is what we want to do, and if you don't want to do it, you know, go to hell. Much better to keep working with them, as you say, on the non-security issues, like transnational crime, and I'm sure there are others. A very sensible proposition. Hun Sang, thank you very much for joining us today from Taiwan, even though you belong back in Vietnam. Yeah, thank you so much, Amanda. Keep safe. If you're wondering where Southeast Asia will be in 10 or 20 years, think about how long it will take for us to populate the universe. You have a long-term plan which will reward you in the end. You look from nine to nine, there is time for little else. You might often hear people say, our politicians are far too short-term. Why don't they take a longer-term view? Well, how long? I mean, long-termism is a very long time, and there might be some issues with that. So, to talk about it, we're going to chat with Phil Torres. He's a PhD candidate in philosophy at Leibniz University in Hanover in Germany, and he joins us now from Hanover. Phil Torres, welcome to CounterPoint. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Now, long-termism is a term to describe people who think in the very long term, isn't it? Yep, that's right. So long-termism is a relatively new term. 
that was coined basically to refer to this new perspective on the future that doesn't just look into the next century, but millions and billions of years from now. Mm -hmm. So in this context, we might not matter, we as people. Well, yeah, that's right. If you take a very broad cosmic perspective, then yes, we are just, you know, occupying what could be the very beginning of human or post-human, as it's sometimes called, history, which again could last for billions of years. And, you know, the total number of people that could exist is many, many orders of magnitude greater than the number of people who have so far existed, which is something like 117 billion. And so in that sense, we are indeed very insignificant. Indeed. So when people say, oh, this is the end of the world, that is a problem if it's the end of the globe, because we might be, I doubt it myself, but just on a guess of numbers of how many galaxies there are in our universe, I doubt we're the only other life. But if the globe goes boom, then that is a problem, isn't it? Even the long-termists would agree with that. Yeah, that's right. So on the one hand, there have been some studies recently that pretty strongly suggest we probably are the only, at least intelligent beings, in the galaxy, perhaps in the, the universe itself. And so actually, this is one of the issues that long-termists point to in order to say that our existence matters immensely. It has cosmic significance because we might be the only creatures out there that are, you know, intelligence, capable of developing advanced technologies, producing arts, you know, civilization. But they'd also add that, you know, if humanity were to go extinct, that would be bad for two reasons. On the one hand, everybody who exists at the moment of the extinction event would perish. You know, if this were like a nuclear conflict or something, that would be yeah. you know, 8 billion people who would perish. Terrible, have... but terrible thing to happen all at once. But let's just be clear about this. Each of those 8 billion people is at one point going to die. Yes, that's true. The issue true, is all at once rather than individual deaths. Exactly, yes. And prematurely, you know, everybody would be killed yeah. you know, in yeah. a nuclear conflict or something like that. But the long-termists at least would say that is by far not the greatest tragedy of human extinction. The greatest tragedy is the fact that our extinction would prevent billions, trillions, maybe trillions and trillions of future people who could exist but will never exist because humanity has gone extinct. And that's the real tragedy that they would point to, which also points at the fact that we are insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I think I've always known that. But what are the consequences <laughs> of long-termism? Why are you opposed to it? Yeah, so I am a very enthusiastic advocate of thinking more about the long-term, for sure. Right. But yeah. there's a sort of numbers game that you can play. Or if you calculate, you know, how many people could come to exist if we were to colonize space, and even more if we were to colonize space and then create these massive computer simulations in which conscious beings like us exist, then you get these really massive numbers of possible future people that long-termists would say we have a moral obligation to create. And as soon as you do this, then it becomes clear that what matters most is the realization of these people. That is the end. So then what are the means that are acceptable? Well, perhaps there could be actions that we would ordinarily consider to be morally unacceptable, 
but from the long-termist perspective, might be necessary to realize these future people. And it also leads mm. to the minimizing of current day tragedies that affect real human beings that, unlike these possible people in the future, can actually yeah. bleed and actually cry. And so, for yeah. example, climate change is one that I've pointed to on a number of occasions, because climate change is probably not going to prevent us from colonizing the universe in the long term. Maybe climate change is devastating for the next 10 millennia. You know, that's entirely possible. But civilization, the long termists might say, is probably going to bounce back and will probably go on to colonize space. So is climate change what they would call an existential risk? Probably not. And since what really matters are the existential risks, then this could lead someone to minimize, to trivialize, you know, present day disasters like climate change. Mm. There's a lot of money going into this sort of thing, isn't there? I mean, you refer to a grandiosely named Future of Humanity Institute funded by people with a lot of money. And, you know, there are others, the Future of Life Institute. What are these people doing? Getting a lot of money to, what, get people into high positions to think the way the long-termists want? That's one of the goals, yeah. So there are these institutes that have popped up over the past, you know, two decades. Future of Humanity Institute was founded in 2005. There's also, as you mentioned, the Future of Life Institute. And a lot of super wealthy individuals have taken interest. And so right now, there's a movement called the Effective Altruism Movement, which is very much linked to the long-termist ideology. What about the Forethought Foundation? Are they in there too? Yes, they are. If you put yep, all of them together, that's a hell of a lot of money, isn't it? Why don't they join forces and work together? <laughs> they are all essentially working on the same projects. And a lot of their funding comes from the same places, like open philanthropy. And so they're just separate entities that are kind of focused on, you know, slightly different problems within this larger worldview, which has, you know, billions and billions of dollars in committed funding. So I've mentioned the article that, you know, long-termism is, I think, one of the most influential ideologies out there that almost nobody outside of, you know, prestigious universities and Silicon Valley have ever heard of. You're on RN. This is Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking to Phil Torres. He is doing a PhD at Leibniz University in Hanover in Germany. And we're talking about the people who think it's more important to make sure that humankind can get out and populate the universe than it is to look after starving people today. They say, take a long-term view. Mm, I don't like it. Haven't the Centre for Security Emerging Technologies, the person who established, is now an advisor to Joe Biden? Yeah, so there is a guy who used to run IARPA, which is one of the major research organisations or agencies in the US. DARPA is its sister organisation, which most people have heard of. And so he used to run IARPA, before that, he was at the Future of Humanity Institute, and then he went on to found this other organization in D.C., which has gotten you know, millions and millions of dollars to basically promote the long-termist worldview. And yes, right now, he has immense influence in the Biden administration. So yeah, the long-termist view really is hugely influential, and I find that to be worrisome because of some of the implications of 
taking seriously all of these, you know, trillions and trillions of future people who could exist throughout the universe, mostly in computer simulations. And the idea that it's our moral obligation to, above all else, to bring these people into existence. Mm. I think it's a bit worrying because they have some other unusual ideas, these people, don't they? For example, that there should be a global invasive surveillance system monitoring every person on the planet in real time. Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) That's ugly. It is. And so the reason some of them end up at that view is because if you want to colonize space and create all of these simulated humans, you know, 10 to the 54 is one of the estimates of how many simulated consciousnesses there could be in the future, then you need to develop incredibly powerful technologies. The problem is that a lot of these technologies are also increasingly accessible. So there are individuals or small groups who could use these technologies, not for good, but you know, possibly to inflict truly catastrophic global scale harm. So these would be things like nanotechnology or synthetic biology, and it might be possible to synthesize mm. a designer pathogen that is far more lethal and far more contagious than COVID-19 is. So you need to develop these technologies. But the problem is, how do you keep them out of the hands of individuals, of terrorist groups? or Yeah, so that leads to this idea that maybe one way to fight the fire is with more fire. So we could create this global mass surveillance system to watch everybody in real time, to make sure that there is no individual, there's no terrorist or no psychopathic individual who gets a hold of this technology, and then uses it to potentially cause our extinction. It's a very dangerous view that empowers, you know, states, gives a huge amount of power to states to watch their citizens. It's gesturing at a dystopian future that, you know, science fiction writers have been discussing for some time. It's very worrisome. Well, it is because some of these people, I mean, not all of them, I know, but some of them, are talking about using advanced technologies to, quote, re-engineer our bodies and brains to create a superior race. Well, that sounds a bit like eugenics, really, and mucking around with humans to make sure they can cope with this future. In other words, not us as we are, but us in a changed way. I find that quite frightening. What about you? Yes. I mean, there are different reasons to think that that might be bad. And so one that has often been mentioned is that it's sort of playing God and tampering with nature. And for me personally, I don't find that argument particularly compelling. I mean, we use medical technologies to modify ourselves all the time. Usually it's classified as therapy. They're called transhumanists who believe that you know we yeah. should actually use technology to create a new race of post-human beings. The reason I find that to be problematic has much more to do with what you just gestured at, which is eugenics, and the possibility that this could exacerbate social inequality. You know, very wealthy people are going to get hold of this technology much sooner than, you know, poor people, if they ever have access to it. And that could radically exacerbate the wealth inequality that is already a major problem in the world today. So I find that to be extremely dangerous, a dangerous idea, but again, not because it's tampering with nature, but because of the potential consequences of it. Mm. 
Well, some of these people say we shouldn't, again, quote, fritter away our resources on such things as solving global poverty. And that seems to make the aim of humanity now to extend itself in whatever way it can, rather than to look after each other. You know, I think this is a very dangerous idea. Yeah, and so that ties back into what we were discussing earlier. If you believe that it's our moral obligation to create as many people as possible in the future, on the assumption that these people will be happy living in computer simulations or on other planets, <laughs> which is a big assumption, but that's one that's made. So then you could define the term existential risk or existential catastrophe as any event that prevents the realization of all these people. And from there, you get this idea that what matters most is preventing an existential risk. And so if there is some sort of catastrophe, a localized genocide or you know, climate change that erases half of Bangladesh or the Maldives or you know, causes all sorts of human suffering, you should not be too concerned about that if it's not going to be an existential risk. So that's where you get this idea that you shouldn't fritter away. These are the words of Nick Bostrom, who founded the Future for Humanity Institute and who is the director. You shouldn't fritter away your resources on anything that's sub-existential, anything that's below that level mm. of catastrophe that will prevent us from realizing all of this you know, imaginary value in the far future billions of years from now. And so it's a view that I do worry would lead people, as I mentioned before, to trivialize events that are happening right now that are affecting real human beings for the sake of, you know, the greater cosmic good. Well, the chance, the possibility of the greater cosmic good. I quite agree. Phil Turos, it's a fascinating piece. I hadn't heard of these people, the long-termists, that think it's more important to extend us in some way or another out into the galaxy than it is to look after the people today. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Some years ago, we made an effort to have particular interviews on what it means to be a good person. This came back to mind today when somebody said, oh, I don't know what the world's coming to. It's, you know, going downhill on a tube. Nobody knows what to do. And I found myself piping up because of these programs that we put together, saying, well, I think I know what we have to do. If everyone on earth bothered to consider being a good person... If that was enough, didn't have to be rich, didn't have to have a master's degree, you had to be a good person. And you got credited with being a good person rather than put down because you didn't have a degree. And we went that extra step and we called out people who weren't good people, who did bad things, even if they're friends or business associates, people you know. If you stand up and say, that's not right, that's not fair, I think you've done the wrong thing. You don't have to go further than that, but you do have to speak up for goodness. If we all did that, the world would be a much, much better place. 
You've heard of Edward Jenner. Have you heard of Jetsy? You should have. Vaccines are all in the news now, aren't they? To vax or not to vax, mandatory vax, not mandatory vax. Blah, 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 it's an endless argument, isn't it? But, you know, vaccinations have saved lots of lives and it's really quite interesting how some of them started. So the article I read from Cows to COVID took my attention very much. To talk about Cows to COVID the start of vaccines, we're going to be joined by Brendan Burrell. He's a biologist and journalist in the United States. He's written for the New York Times, the Scientific American and the Smithsonian, and he's giving us some of his time today and he joins us from Los Angeles. Brendan Burrell, welcome to CounterPoint. Thanks for having me on. Brendan, you start the article by pointing out that there was a time when a trip to the doctor was a bit risky. Now we go to the doctor to be saved, but that perhaps didn't happen in the early days, did it? No. I mean, there was quite a bit of trial and error back in the 17th and 18th century. I mean, this is before we had sort of established scientific practices and people were whipping up all kinds of potions. I mentioned in the article, frog's lungs and powdered Egyptian mummy were some of the treatments for tuberculosis. Gee, and bull's penises as well. Bad luck about the bulls. <laughs> you know, it's just extraordinary what they used to do. But I suppose the search for better health is inevitable and there will be mistakes made along the way. I understand that. Now, smallpox hit and it wasn't good, was it? Smallpox had been a scourge of humanity for thousands of years. In fact, it would periodically pop up. And in the 18th century in England, they were facing a pretty nasty outbreak and they really didn't have too many options for dealing with it. Well, you describe it as a village of Yetminster. I don't know where that is, but in 1774, there was a farmer called Benjamin Yetsi or Jetsi, and he deserves a lot more credit than he gets, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, this is a story of, you know, uneducated man who basically experiments on himself and his own family to deliver us what became vaccination, right? Mm. Well, apparently he came across this because he had two dairymaids and they were looking after stricken relatives, but they didn't contract the disease. But they did say they'd developed some of these pustules on their hands from the cows that they were milking. So what did he then do? Well, he said... <laughs> you know, my wife and my two boys and a baby girl, I'm going to take them over to a farmer I know who has cows. And he went over there one day with a stocking needle and he pricked these little pustules because it's another condition called cowpox that the dairymaids were suffering from. And he got a little bit of that pustule and then he inoculated his family with this, at this time, unknown disease. Mm, she was a brave woman, but apparently he put the needle in just below her elbow and her arm swelled up and she had a fever for about a week and then she was okay. That's fabulous news. And then he did the same to his boys. 
That's right. I mean, I don't know if this experiment would meet ethical standards today, <laughs> but there they were, the, this family that had just undergone an experiment and they never suffered from smallpox after that. But it went undiscovered for a fair while, didn't it? You describe it as being a bit of folklore. Yes, the story of what happened with Jesse seems to have been documented somewhat in some local community archives. And eventually a man named Edward Jenner ended up testing out vaccination himself. The difference between Jenner and Jesse was Jenner was actually a doctor who was in school. You're on RN. This is Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking to Brendan Burrell. He's a biologist and journalist, but more importantly, the author of The First Shots, the epic rivalries and heroic science behind the race to the coronavirus vaccine. And he's got some stories about the past. You know, it's not always scientists who know everything. Do you know, you're probably not a regular listener of this program being in the United States, but we did a program some time ago about the Wright brothers who learned how to argue at the table because their father encouraged them to take different sides of the argument each night. Now, as you know, the Wright brothers had the first man flight. I think you can say they, in effect, started our journey to the moon. But neither of them had tertiary education either. So this story is particularly interesting. Now, I've got a, a sort of ugly question, really. I feel guilty asking this. Did Edward Jenner give credit to Jesty? Or did he make yeah. out it was his idea? That's a great question. I don't think the historical record is clear whether, you know, Jenner stole the idea. In fact, Jesty's idea didn't necessarily spread through traditional channels. He didn't publish a scientific paper. No. But people kind of heard about it. Yeah. Okay, so we move forward to vaccines today. What's the story today? Well, the story is that this basic technique, which was you take a somewhat harmless pathogen, this cowpox virus, mm -hmm. and it somehow protects you against the dangerous pathogen, smallpox. And this basic idea has been used in multiple vaccines since then. Now we sometimes we take a virus, we weaken it, we kill it, or else we just give to people a little piece of it, as we do with the coronavirus vaccine, right? We just give people the spike protein. So our body says, oh, this is a threat, but it's actually not going to hurt us. <laughs> mm. So you have no time for the people who come up with these other things we should try? <laughs> as with the 18th century, when people were trying all kinds of wacky things, people yeah. have tried a lot of unproven treatments against the coronavirus. And many of the treatments that people try have really not panned out in large scale clinical trials. I think experimentation is really important. And of course, some things are going to fail, but you got to learn when, hey, enough's enough. Move on to the proven stuff. Mm, mm. Okay, so you're not an ivermectin or a hydroxychloroquine fan. No, not at the moment. I mean, I think, to be clear, there were valid reasons maybe to be testing these things out in the early days, but, you know, they have not proven their benefits at this point. Yeah. So as you rightly conclude, we don't have to live in the dark ages. We can just get vaccinated. That would be a good idea. Brendan, before we let you go, you've written a book, The First Shots, the epic rivalries and the heroic science behind the race to the coronavirus vaccine. Is it a thriller, do you think? I definitely tried to write it as a thriller. I mean, what an amazing story to have an unknown virus they have to develop 
a vaccine against in record time. The scientists were on the edge of their seats, as was the entire world. Yeah, it is a bit of a thriller, isn't it? Well, I look forward to reading it. Brendan Burrell, thanks for joining us on CounterPoint. Thanks for having me. Jitsi reminds us that normal people can do really smart things. And the wild catchers in Tasmania are doing just that. We spoke the horses. They ran through the night. We tried to feed them apples, but they didn't take a bite. If you like the idea of preserving our natural environment, our heritage, our flora and fauna, you probably think national parks are a great thing. But do you think, oh, well, that's good, we've got national parks, they're enough? They're not. You know, flora and fauna aren't limited to there, and they're in unusual places sometimes as well, not necessarily where all the animals want to be. So flora and fauna are well outside of national parks, and they still need monitoring, if you like, so we know what we're doing, what harm we're causing, what good we're doing. How do we go about that? Well, it turns out there are some people in Tasmania called Wild Trackers. It's a citizen science wildlife monitoring network, and it sounds great. Joining us to talk about that is Ted Lafroy. He's an adjunct professor at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture in the University of Tasmania, and he joins us now from Tasmania. Ted Lafroy, welcome back to CounterPoint. Thanks, Amanda. Ted, who thought of the name Wild Tracker? It's got some enthusiasm to it, you know. It's not sort of the come and help us monitor things, boring name, Wild Tracker sounds, as if you're doing something. It is a good name, and the credit for that goes to an ecologist who works for the Tasmanian Land Conservancy, Matt Taylor, who decided mm -hmm. to do a PhD as part of his work, and he was branching out into this citizen science project, and he gave it that catchy title. Well, that's great. And you make the point that, you know, as humans, we break land up according to all sorts of rules, but animals don't take any notice of lines on a map. They don't know about it. Birds don't. Cows don't. There was a big fuss in Europe, I think, about a cow that crossed over the line into the wrong country and then couldn't come back. And, oh, dear, it was terrible. Terrible because of the agony the cow was put through, but terrible because we were so stupid we didn't realise that cows don't take any notice of this sort of thing. Now, not only cows, native animals, native birds. So what can Wild Tracker do? What's the output from these people? What can we learn from what they've noted? Well, the beauty of Wild Tracker is that you have hundreds of people involved in the Citizen Science Project with motion-sensitive cameras on their blocks of land, and these are hobby farmers, they're professional people, they're large commercial farmers, lots of different people have got involved. And by keeping a record of what's on their property, we get a picture, a much bigger picture, over hundreds of mm. square kilometres of what is where and where they're moving. And so it extends the boundary of conservation well beyond title and tenure, to which it's restricted yeah. if we rely just on national parks and reserves. Indeed. So they have these movement-activated cameras on their properties. Then what happens to the footage? How does it in practice work? Is it automatically uploaded to a central database? And if it is, who then goes through it and 
plots it so that people can learn from the summary okay. of the data? Well, each of the participants, in order to earn their little show bag with a camera and the different bits of kit they need, yep. they go to a half-day workshop and they learn how to operate the camera, how to set it up, and also how to take out the little SD card, like in most cameras, pop that in a computer, and then upload the images to a website. And then there's a whole bunch of volunteers working with the Tasmania Land Conservancy that go through and tag the photos. So there's a lot of false images, like grass moving and branches, and so they eliminate those. And then they tag the ones that have birds and animals in them, and then that goes up onto the Wild Tracker website. Now, one of the issues we had, it was so oversubscribed that we've actually had to pause the program for a reset because we became overwhelmed with the amount of data. And the limiting step at the moment is the number of volunteers who can identify species. And while there's been a promise for years of artificial intelligence to do it, it's not quite there. So we're still relying on an army of volunteers but what we're doing is upgrading the website so that the participants can actually do quite a few of the steps themselves. And some of them have come up with some great ideas. There's some very smart people out there, you know, retired professional people, engineers who've contributed to the way it's operating. And we're learning as we go. But at the moment, we rely on a small army of volunteers to do the tagging, the identification. It sounds like a great project, a recognition, yes, that not everything has to be done by government. More to the point, not everything can be. I mean, imagine government trying to do this. It's just not going to work. Here you've got people with an interest because it's their land, people with an interest because they're keen on conservation or on birds or, you know, other fauna, whatever the, the reasoning is, and they're pooling their resources, and that's what's important, not just their physical assets, as in I've got some land and I've got a camera, but their capacity for observation and their time and effort, putting it together. I mean, who thought of this? Well, I mean, this is the beauty of citizen science because what it's doing is mobilising a growing demographic. So if you think back to when the age pension was first introduced at the age of 65, life expectancy was 67. Now it's 87 for women and 85 for men. And what we've found is that a significant proportion of the people cooperating are from that demographic. And the very reason governments are getting out of conservation and the environment, it's partly neglect, but it's also partly necessity because of the demands on changing revenue for aged care, health care. And so because governments have got far greater demands on their revenue, they have been getting out of conservation for years and initially the second wave was the private sector, not-for-profits. Organisations like the Land Conservancy in the United States, which turned 70 this year and is the largest private landholder in the United States, private entities, not-for-profits, have stepped in to fill in the gaps in the reserve network and what Wild Tracker and other citizen science projects represent to me is the third wave. This is conservation without borders that doesn't rely on tenure and mobilises a small army of highly motivated, very smart people. Yeah. You're on RN. This is Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Ted Lafroy. He's an adjunct professor in the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture at the University of Tasmania and a contributor to a great book, Breathing Space. And we're talking about Wild Tracker, humans getting together and doing something to help conserve the environment and fauna outside of national parks.
Great idea. Now, where does the information go? Say, for example, we discover that, I don't know, there are wombats where we thought they weren't. What do we then do with this? I mean, I'm impressed with the energy and enthusiasm of the project and the capacity that it clearly has, but let's move on to what it achieves. What can people do with what you learn? Well, I'll give you an example. There's a small marsupial called an eastern barred bandicoot. And as far as I know, the only remaining population on the mainland is located in western Victoria, centred on the Hamilton tip. And the understanding was they're in decline in Tasmania. And there was concern about their distribution, where they occurred. And one of the first things that came up out at Wild Tracker is they have a far wider distribution than we thought. And so once we've got that data, that then can be funneled into existing programs, government and private, that are aimed at recreating habitat or connecting habitat patches. The one limitation we've got at the moment with this form of surveillance is it tells us about distribution, where they are, but it's very difficult to know abundance, how many there are. And to do that, you actually have to identify individuals within a species. Now, there are some very smart people who can identify one Tasmanian devil from another or one grey forester kangaroo from another, but that's decades of experience. So the missing step at the moment, I mentioned one missing step was just the terabytes of data that have to be analysed. The other one is cracking this idea of abundance. We've got better ideas of distribution of eastern barred bandicoots and we're learning a lot, but we really don't know is their population increasing or is it in decline? So we really do have to crack that next step. And there are some surveillance techniques such as you get an animal to run through say, a plastic tube lined with double-sided tape and you collect hairs, you then analyse the Mm -hmm. hairs and the DNA analysis, which is getting cheaper every year or every decade, can distinguish between species and individuals within a species. Now, that is still a promise that's quite a way off, but the thing that excites me is we couldn't have done this without the cloud, without modern computing technology, without NBN, without Wi-Fi. All of that has made it possible for people sitting in these farms and remote hobby farms in different parts of the country, being able to get this information and upload it. The next step will be to be able to understand abundance as well as distribution. But we are learning about wider distribution. We're also seeing that fallow deer, which are wild in Tasmania, they're cropping up further south than we thought, right down to Southport. And so we are learning things that government agencies and other conservation groups haven't known to date. And so that gets written up, it gets published in journals, we make presentations to government and we communicate in the normal way. Now, Ted, this isn't something that someone listening to this, say in Queensland, could easily say, or is it? Well, I think I'll set up a wild tracker here in Queensland. I mean, you'd have to have, what, involvement of the State Department for Conservation, would you? Or what would you get? A university to provide the cameras or do people... chip in that themselves. If you wanted to start it up, how would you go about Uh, it? Okay. Well, the way that the Tasmanian Land Conservancy, and I should disclose, I'm on the board of the Tasmanian Land Conservancy, hence my interest, and I've been watching this from the perspective of the board for some years and now got very interested in its potential. If you wanted to start it up, okay, what did we do? We wrote some grant applications 
to government and that got us the initial cameras. We've since raised money amongst our supporters privately, which are funding part of it. We also using philanthropic funds to build the initial platform, the website that holds the data and that's having an upgrade. And so we're investing donations into that. You do need an organisation with some resources and some governance and some ecologists, but there's a growing number of them in Australia. There was a conference recently of the Australian Land Conservation Alliance and what they revealed was that the top three of those, which are between 20 and 30 years old, they now generate $60 million a year in revenue. So the public is voting with its wallets in supporting conservation and there are quite a few of these organisations, a lot smaller than those, that employ one or two ecologists and have the resources to set up something like this. Yeah. Ted, I've got a final question for you. A politician in my state once said we should, you know, get rid of the feral ducks on the torrents, that is, ducks that have mated with, you know, pet ducks that have been released because mum and dad have got sick of the ducks pooping around the back door. And that might be a very wise view. Another wise view down the other end of the table is that person says, look, give me a break. We're an immigration country. We've been intermarrying for years. What are we doing making sure the animals don't? So which end of the table are you? Well, you've opened up a can of worms there. I mean, that's one of the biggest questions, I think, in conservation There was a paper in Nature in 2011 simply titled Don't Judge Species by Their Origin. And there are, I think, 19 ecologists wrote this paper and what they're pointing out is we shouldn't just judge species on where they come from, whether they're exotic or endemic or even how rare they are. We should judge them on the functions they perform within an ecosystem. And if they perform a function that was otherwise performed by an endemic species or does not degrade, and here we're getting deep into values because it all comes down to what humans prefer in an ecosystem. But if they are seen not to be a noxious weed or to be degrading that ecosystem, accept their presence. Two weeks later, a paper appeared in Nature simply titled Introduced Species, 141 Scientists Disagree. So this is a hugely contentious area within ecology, but to most people it's a no-brainer. We have exotic plants and animals you know, we can't remove them from our world. The question is making a distinction between something that is wild, or that is feral or noxious, or that is clearly degrading an e- ecosystem versus one that is either neutral or positive. And if so, we shouldn't judge it on its origin. Ted LaFroy, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining us on CounterPoint. Thanks, Amanda. That's the program for this week. Thanks for joining us. As you know, we love your feedback. Hop onto the ABC site, go to RN and follow the prompts to CounterPoint. This week, some comments came in. One was in young, trendy language. We have to look it up in a new person's dictionary, young person's dictionary. And I'm glad we did because initially I thought it was criticism. Turns out it was a compliment. Here you go. You never know, do you? Anyway, we welcome all your comments in any event. Until next week, this is Amanda Vanstone saying see you later. Everything will be fine. In the morning.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.